Amen. If you have your copy of Scripture this morning, we're in Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts. Acts 22, and we're going to start with verse 22 this morning, and we'll read through Acts chapter 23, verse 11. So Acts 22, 22 through 23, 11. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. It says, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion, who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers that he was a high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say, There is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers, Go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Title this message, Witnesses for Jesus. 
Have you ever tried to share the gospel with someone? And when you were done sharing the gospel, you felt like you blew it. Hopefully, as followers of Christ, you have at least made an attempt to be a witness to other people through your words of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know there have been multiple times in my life where the Lord has given me opportunities to take a bold stance for Him and be a sound witness where afterwards I felt like I just blew it. I walk away from those times always thinking, well, I should have said this or I should have said that. I remember one of the first times I went out and I was street witnessing we were just out on a busy street in Pennsylvania, I think it was, or New York. I can't remember where I was at the time. And we were sharing the gospel with people. And I remember I approached a lady and she asked me a question. She said, if God is so good and if your religion is right, then why do people that have never heard about Jesus go to hell? And at that time, I didn't have an answer. And to be honest, that was a defining moment in my life. And when I began to take theology seriously, I stood there, I was dumbfounded, I did not know what to say, and I remember feeling so small, and I remember walking away from that conversation thinking I would let the Lord down. But here's the thing. Because of that failure, it drove me deeper. I began to study witnessing and began to study evangelism and different techniques you could use. I began to look at apologetics. I began to look deeper into my theology so I'd have an answer for people when they'd say, ask me questions like that. It showed me also how inadequate I am. And when I would share the gospel, I would pray before I'd share the gospel that God would use me and do something in spite of me. You know, I can't say that I have all the answers. I still blow it today. Like the time later on when I was again out on the street sharing the gospel with people and a lady told me that she didn't believe in God and so I responded with God's existence is not contingent on your belief in Him. Go stand in the street and don't believe in cars and see what happens. And that didn't go over so well. She was not too happy with me. There are times I feel smug and I fail. But what I've learned is that sharing the gospel and being a witness for the Lord, sometimes things go good and sometimes they don't go so good. However, we are still all to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. And as we read through this account where Paul is speaking to the people, it should encourage us because we read something here that reveals to us that sometimes witnessing doesn't go so well. However, even in the midst of things not going so well, the Lord brings encouragement to Paul's discouragement and he tells him to take courage because just like he had been a witness to his name in Jerusalem, he would also be a witness to his name in Rome. And I believe the great lesson for us is that we are to be witnesses for Jesus even when things may not go so well. The Lord will give grace and even more opportunities to speak the gospel for His glory. And so this morning I want to break down this passage of scripture for us and hopefully bring some application to our lives. I think the first thing that we see as we look at this passage of scripture is this, Paul the prisoner persecuted. 
Listen, church, there's going to be times when it seems like everything is turned against you. There will be times when you're trying to be a witness and it feels like all the cards are stacked against you and there's no hope of escape, but I want you to know that God has not abandoned you. He is always working out His plan for your life, even in the midst of difficult times, even if it means an angry mob is ready to take your life and you are cast into jail, God is still working out His plan. Let's look at this angry crowd for a moment. We see this angry crowd in verse 22. We see that Paul's speech has ended. But look back to verse 21 and look at the last word that Paul ended his speech with. Did you see it? In verse 21, he ends it with this one word, Gentiles. That's the final word of his message. And, and the thought that the Jews and Gentiles could possibly stand on any sorts of equal footing before God was completely intolerable to this crowd. You, you, they, they, they can't stand on equal ground. You ever say to somebody, you ever heard this expression, over my dead body? Right? Over my dead body. That was their expression. This is one of those times. They heard the word Gentile and they reacted violently. Suddenly the audience becomes a mob again and their prejudice fills the air. Remember in verse 36 of chapter 21, they had said, away with him. They said, away with this man. Now look what they say. They use even stronger language. They don't just say away with him. They say away with him from the earth. And in other words, rid the earth of this man. This guy's not even fit to live anymore. Just get rid of him. Wipe the face of the earth with this guy. He, he shouldn't even be around. They were so angry. They were throwing off their outer, outer garments, their cloaks. They're throwing dirt up into the air. We don't know what that looks like. Perhaps they were ripping their garments. We don't, we don't really know. That was a common thing to do in order to express disgust is to rip your outer garments or maybe they were taking them off and looking for some rocks so they could stone Paul but there were not any rocks so they just threw dirt in the air or maybe they were shaking out their cloaks to express that what Paul said was filth and they were going to rid themselves of it. Who knows? But the picture is this mob is thoroughly disgusted with what Paul has said. They're out of control. They're throwing dust either up in the air or on themselves or something. And, and maybe they're throwing it at Paul. We don't know. Their behavior is beyond explanation. They're, they're acting like a bunch of animals rather than humans. They're just going nuts. They're going crazy. You ever see somebody act like this? Can you imagine Paul speaking and these guys just rip? He can see their anger and they're just ripping off their cloaks. and They're just, they're looking, there's no rocks. They're just grabbing dirt and throwing it. And it's just a crazy scene. Maybe some of you have been that angry before. Right? Oh, if I had something, I'd throw it. It's the way these guys are. Their behavior is so extreme. Look what happens. We move from an angry crowd to the action of the commander. To the action of the commander. The crowd is so angry. You know, the, the, it uses the word tribune. I'm going to use the word commander because that's what it means. But the crowd is so angry, the commander's 
is moved to action and he orders Paul to be taken into the barracks and he just decides to give him a good flogging to find out why the people are mad at him. Makes perfect sense, right? Let's beat this fella to find out why these other people who just beat him want him dead. Makes pretty good sense. This is simply how things went in the Roman world. You know, today we have rights, but then the Romans just took you and gave you a good old scourging to get you to talk. This is how they interrogated you. It was regular and it was legal and often used against slaves or aliens. This was not the same as the Jewish scourging that went on either. Often the Jews would use what was called the lictor's rods or a different instrument for lashing. However, the Romans used what was called the phlegrum and the Romans had various designs. It was often constructed with a wooden handle and leather thongs strung with lead pellets or knuckle bones but could also be made with wires with the ends bristled up. It would result sometimes in being paralyzed or even death if it used, was used repeatedly. According to the scriptures, Paul had been beaten five times with 39 lashes by the Jewish authorities and three times with rods by Roman magistrates, but the flagrant was far more brutal and was the beating given to Jesus in Pilate's hall. This is what was going to happen to Paul. As the soldiers stretch Paul out, they prepare him for the beating that he's going to receive. He addresses the centurion that is presiding over it by asking him, is it lawful for you to flog a Roman citizen? Roman law prohibited the flogging of a Roman citizen. By law, every Roman citizen was considered a citizen of emperor himself. To flog a Roman citizen meant that you were taking your own life into your own hands. No one would question the claim to be a Roman citizen or Roman citizenship. It was simply accepted at face value because if later it's proven that you are not a citizen, then the punishment's even far worse. And so Paul makes that appeal. We have the action of the commander. He makes that appeal, an appeal to citizenship. The centurion soldier pretty much had to report it immediately to his commander about Paul's claims. And the commander apparently wastes no time in getting to Paul as to avoid a miscarriage of justice. Notice how Paul says, is it lawful to flog a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And uncondemned, the commander had purchased his citizenship for a large sum of money. And the commander says, well, I purchased my citizenship. I paid a lot of money for this. However, Paul says, I was born a citizen. If this commander would have flogged Paul, it would have been unthinkable, especially since they had no idea who Paul was or if he was even guilty of a crime whatsoever. It would have, it would have stunned the commander when Paul said, I was born a citizen and he did not purchase his citizenship. And all honestly, we don't know how Paul's family attained citizenship. There are all kinds of speculations about it. One Bible scholar says that most likely Paul's ancestors had received Roman citizenship for valuable services they had given to a Roman administrator. Either way, Paul made it clear he was a Roman citizen and he appealed to that citizenship. Not only did Paul make an appeal to his Roman citizenship, but then he makes an appeal to the Sanhedrin. So later, Paul's brought before the Sanhedrin and he makes an appeal. He avoids the flogging. He's still being held in custody as a Roman citizen, no charges had been brought against him. Granted, the claim would be made that Paul was being held in custody for his own protection from the mob, but regardless, 
There needed to be some sort of explanation of why he was in jail and what was going on and why were these people so angry at Paul. Not to mention they still didn't really know anything about Paul. So the next morning, an order was given. Paul is to appear before the Sanhedrin. If Paul was truly a devout Jew, then certainly these Jewish scholars, the people of the Sanhedrin of the day, could get the truth out of Paul. This was obviously considered a Jewish matter, and the commander needed some advice, and so he goes to the people that he feels can give him the best advice. Paul's long journey to Rome has begun, but it's not to be the journey that Paul had planned. Because he's going to eventually enter Rome as a prisoner, not as a man free to move about as he wished. His imprisonment would last about five years. And through all this, Paul stands firm. He boldly argues that he is a good Jew and that Jesus as Messiah should be accepted. The Lord was able to use Paul as a witness despite the opposition he faced over and over and over again. And you know, and as I look at the situation with Paul... Paul stretched out, getting ready to be flogged, and then he doesn't get flogged, and then he stands before the Sanhedrin, then he proclaims Jesus Christ to Sanhedrin. As I look at this situation, I wonder how often when we're faced with opposition to our witness for Christ, I wonder how often our first concern is with saving our own necks. I wonder how often our first concern is with, with well, what's so-and-so going to think about me? Or what is this person going to feel about me? Or, or what if this person suddenly doesn't like me? Or what if, what if, uh, what if my job is in jeopardy? Or, or whatever, we can think of all these ways where we kind of look out for our own necks instead of being a witness for Christ. I wonder if we, like Paul, are willing to stand firm as a bold witness for Jesus Christ, no matter the cost, no matter what goes on, no matter what may transpire, that we're willing to stand and be a bold witness for Christ to our neighbor, to the person at the grocery store, to the person at the gas station, to the person wherever we are, whatever job we have. I wonder if we're willing to be like Paul, to put it all on the line and just be a bold witness for Jesus Christ as we're called to do. <coughs> because like Paul, <coughs> we must be witnesses for Jesus. Plain and simple church, if you know Christ as your Savior, then you are His witness. Now whether or not you are a good witness, I don't know. But you bear His name. Little Christ. And our actions and our attitudes and words all bear witness to Him. Furthermore, we should be looking for opportunities to speak a witness for Jesus Christ. Peter tells us we should always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that's in us. He goes on to say that we are to keep a good conscience so that when we are slandered or people speak evil against our good behavior in Christ, they would be put to shame. Interestingly enough, Paul gave a defense in chapter 22 verse 1 and here in chapter 23 verse 1 he says that he has a good conscience he says he has a good conscience you see church like Paul we must be ready to speak for Christ we must be ready to speak for Christ remember Paul had been beaten by a mob he was rescued and his first thought was, I need to address this crowd and share with them about Jesus. 
When he stands before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, he feels like he needs to tell them about Jesus later on when he will stand before the Roman governors of his day. Guess what? He feels like he needs to tell them about Jesus. All this leads to the fact that we need to be ready to speak for Christ. You and I need to be ready to speak for Jesus. I don't believe any of these opportunities that Paul's faced with were by chance, but that every single one of them is a divine appointment. So often we walk through our day and our life not even thinking about the people that God puts in our path. Remember Paul said he does all things for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that he had become all things to all men that he may by all means save some. Paul was deliberate in what he did. He was ready, but he also was always on the lookout for opportunities to share the gospel. And I can't help but wonder, what does that look like in our own lives? Are we always looking for opportunities to share the gospel? What does it look like to do all things for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What does it look like if we go through our daily lives and our prayer is, Lord, give me an opportunity today to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with somebody. Give me an opportunity to share you with someone today. Help me take advantage of those opportunities, God, by speaking for you. I'm curious, would you be willing to say that prayer in your own life? Would you be willing to say that prayer every single day, the morning, the minute you get out of bed that morning? Lord, give me an opportunity to share the gospel with someone today. Would you be willing to do that every single day to look for opportunities instead of just walking through your day, doing what you always do, doing the same old thing, not looking for opportunities, just kind of doing your thing. Would you be willing every single morning, Lord, give me an opportunity to share your gospel? You see, we have to be ready, church. Just like Paul was ready, we have to be ready. But not only do we need to be ready, we need to be prepared. And what I mean by this is to go over in your head what you're going to say to people. No tools that you can use, whether it be a Roman's road or whether it be tracks like, like our church has, which we don't have them on display yet, but if you want some, uh, come ask me for them. Or whether it be a book, we have little booklets, Life on Mission, that you can take people through whether it be something that you've memorized or whether it's your own testimony. Remember last week, that is what we see Paul do. He shares his testimony. What was his testimony? Well, he shares what he was doing before conversion. What was he doing? He was hunting down Christians. Then he shares his conversion experience. How does that happen? The Lord struck him blind and sent Ananias to, sent Ananias to give him his sight. Then he shares what his life is like after conversion. And what is that? He's a witness to the Gentiles. That's what Paul does. It's really easy. This was my life before. This is how it happened. And this is my life now. Remember last week I said any testimony is a dramatic testimony. Because it's a testimony of how God saved you. You can tell people the Lord has saved you and he will do the same for them. Beyond your testimony, you should know the gospel. You should be able to share the gospel. If you don't, then you need to study the gospel. You know, grab one of those booklets, Life on Mission, so you know how to share. Memorize the book if you have to. Learn how you will respond to common objections to the faith. If somebody says this, then this is what I will say. One of the main reasons we don't witness is because we are afraid and, and we're like, oh, well, I, don't, I don't know what I'm going to say say or or what if I mess up the best way to overcome fear is basic training is to do something to be ready to share the gospel to be prepared 
And so I say, be ready to speak and be prepared to speak. Know what you're going to say. I'm not saying, you know, do a canned presentation so you're just like a robot. But know what to say. But not only be ready to speak, not only be prepared, but live it out. Live it out. Look at verse 1 of chapter 23. Paul says this, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Later on, he will say he does his best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and men. Paul lived his faith. He didn't just talk about it, but his life backed it up. Here's what we need to understand. So often we look at our lives before we came to Christ and we think, well, my testimony is destroyed because I've done all this bad stuff. Or we even say, well, I've done some things since coming to Christ and it's hurt my testimony. And therefore, um, I, I can't share with someone because, boy, my best friends, they know me best and my family knows me best. And we use that as an excuse not to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're like, oh, well, well, people that know me best know how bad of a person I really am. Well, how could Paul say this? I mean, Paul persecuted the church. But to have a good conscience before the Lord has nothing to do with you being perfect. But it has everything to do with you being transparent. And confessing your sin and repenting when you're convicted of your sin. You see, our conscience must be informed by God's word. Even when Paul persecuted the church, his conscience did not convict him because it was not informed by God's word. He even states he was treated with mercy because he was ignorant when he persecuted the church. His conscience at that time was informed by his culture and not the scripture. Therefore, even though he did something terrible, it's not against his conscience at that time. This is why it is imperative that we live a life that's informed by scripture. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that is applied to our hearts that we can have a clear conscience. The point is this. We can have a clear conscience when we witness. We can live our faith out just like Paul did. We can be transparent and when sin is revealed that we repent of it. When we are sharing the gospel, our conscience should be clear. When you're out sharing the gospel with people or when you have an opportunity to share the gospel with people, you should have a clear conscience. Even when you walk into this church building, you should have a clear conscience. Before you even give an offering, the scripture is clear that you shouldn't have any sin against your brother. Your conscience should be clear. In other words, there should not be any sin in your life that you have not repented of. Otherwise, your witness will be hurt. And that's where people say, well, you're just a hypocrite. You're just a hypocrite. I see you do this and that and all this kind of sin. I've seen you do this. I remember that time you lied to me about so-and-so. But you see, when you have a clear conscience, you can say, oh, my conscience is clear of that because I've repented of it. So I say to you, seek to maintain a clear conscience before the Lord and men. And if you have no desire to do so, if you have no desire to maintain a clear conscience, if you have no desire to repent of sin in your life, then please don't run around declaring that you're a Christian. Because quite honestly, you very well may not be a Christian. If you have no desire to maintain a clear conscience, it's, it's really doubtful whether the Holy Spirit is taking up residence in your life or not. 
So we've seen Paul the prisoner persecuted. We've seen like Paul that you and I, we must be a witness for Jesus. Let's see the third point. Sometimes we blow. Right? Sometimes we blow. There's going to be times where you just blow it. You're going to say the wrong thing. I do that often. One of the hardest things for my personality is for me not to say what I'm thinking. Because sometimes I do say what I'm thinking. And there's been a time or two, or maybe a few hundred times, where my wife has given me the elbow, or she's given me the look. You know, the look that says, I can't believe that you just said that. I can't believe the words I just heard come out of your mouth. Some of these times have even been right here in this church. Even a time or two back there shaking someone's hand. And she said, I later said, I can't believe you said that. Which may be the case for us. We can sometimes say something. Listen, if if you can't think of a time where you blew it, witnessing, then you're probably not witnessing. Which that may be the case for you. Maybe you're not witnessing. Listen carefully, church. The single greatest thing that will grow a church is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people. That's the single greatest thing that will grow a church. You know, I've, I've said this over and over and over again, and I will continue to say it. You know, we can go to church growth this. In fact, we're, we got one. We got one Monday. You know, if you want to go, then, then you can go uh, with me. It's a, how to get your church beyond 100. We have all this church growth stuff. You know, how do you do this? And there's stuff, well, you know, you got to make your building look like this and got to do this and got to do that. And got to, if you have a hip, cool pastor, which is not me, then maybe, you know, maybe you'll grow, whatever. There's all kinds of reasons why we say that we could grow our church. The single greatest thing that will grow the church today is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people that are lost. That's what grows the church. And I don't mean that, that I'm not talking corporately like, oh, we, I mean, we should do that corporately. But I'm not meaning just corporately. I mean that you personally share the gospel with people in your life. And there's been a time or two, I'm sure you've blown it. However, the problem is most Christians don't do it. In fact, a study conducted by LifeWay Research found 80% of those who attend church one or more times a month believe they have a personal responsibility to share the faith. 80% say, I have a personal responsibility to share my faith. But here's the problem. Only 60 or 61% have not, have not told another person about how to become a Christian in the previous six months. 80% say, oh yeah, we need to be doing it. 61% haven't done it. 
We can't continue to let fear keep us from sharing our faith. Fear of saying the wrong thing or whatever it might be. We learn from our mistakes. We have to trust God will overrule our mistakes for His sovereign purpose. And when I blow it, I don't focus on the mistake. I don't sit there and go, oh man, I just blew it. I focus on the fact that I was obedient to the calling of Jesus Christ. I was obedient to God to do what, what it is that He wants me to do. Because His call is for you to just be obedient. Look at Paul. Standing before the Sanhedrin, the council, and it says in the verse 1, chapter 23, that he's looking at them intently. He was focused in on them, most likely not only maintaining eye contact, but trying to read how they were responding to what he was saying. How people respond says a lot about how they're receiving what is being said. For example, when I'm up here preaching on a Sunday morning and someone says, Amen, I know that they are in agreement with what I just said. I know that they liked it. I thought, wow, they liked what I just said. Don't do that too much because then I, I have a tendency to start rolling on and on. Or when I look out and someone is out there sleeping and I know that later they're going to blame it on how hot the sanctuary was but I know I'm probably boring them. They don't, they, maybe they didn't get enough sleep last night or whatever. Or when I look out and someone's getting restless you know they're shifting. I know I'm hitting a nerve. Or when I look out and they got a scowl on their face and their arms are crossed. I get checked and sure nobody's like that. I know they don't like what I just said. I don't need a PhD in body language to know how people are responding to what I'm saying. Paul looks intently at them. He wanted to see their response and then he made, made this, this, these profound statements. About living in good conscience before God. And so he says, I have lived my life as a Jewish citizen in good conscience before God. Paul is denying the charge that's been brought against him. Of bringing a Gentile to the Jewish temple. Otherwise he couldn't say that. Who knows where Paul was going with this because... No sooner than he got these words out of his mouth, Ananias, the high priest, ordered those standing by Paul to strike him on the mouth. Paul had just been beaten. His face was probably sore and bruised. I'm sure that the blow would have hurt and probably was shocking to Paul. To be clear, this order was illegal and unjust. However, he was not interested in justice. He simply, Ananias simply wanted Paul condemned. Ananias was corrupt. He, he was famous for his bribery and plunder of the temple offerings that went on during that day. And he would be later assassinated in AD 66 by, his, by Jewish loyalists of the day. Paul's response is just as outstanding. As the order uh, Ananias gave. In fact, we read what Paul says and we think, well, Paul showed him. Do you read that and think that? Like, oh boy, Paul got him. I mean, who can't read this? God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck? Boy, that sounds good. Like, ooh, he got him. He says, Paul, Paul says, God's going to strike you down, you hypocrite. 
And Paul speaks the truth because the very law that Ananias is trying to uphold as a high priest, he breaks by having Paul stricken in the face. There are several reasons why people believe Paul responded this way. Let me share with you a few of them. Some say Paul was justified in his remark because Ananias' character and behavior. Some say that Paul was justified in expressing righteous anger. Thirdly, some say Paul spoke calmly and delivered a prophecy of God's judgment on Ananias. And fourthly, Paul lost his cool. Stretched beyond the breaking point by the previous day's events, he said something he should not have said. I believe that's the correct one. I believe the fourth one is the correct one. The reason being this, Paul's response when someone expressed their shock that Paul would revile the high priest in such a fashion, Paul responded with he was not aware that Ananias was the high priest and he even admitted his error by quoting from Exodus when he says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. As followers of Christ, if we can't respect the man, sometimes we have to respect the office. And I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but, but if you're like me, you're wondering why Paul didn't recognize the high priest. Because he says, I didn't recognize, I didn't see that he was the high priest. And there's several answers that have been proposed. Let me briefly give them to you. One, Ananias was not dressed in his priestly robes. Remember, a, this was a quickly called meeting. It wasn't official. All the council members may have attended and they're kind of their street clothes so they looked somewhat alike, especially since Paul started speaking before any presiding officer took charge of the meeting. Secondly, Paul meant he does not behave like a high priest, so I'm not going to treat him like a high priest. Thirdly, some people say, well, because Paul had bad eyesight, Paul could not see far enough to recognize Ananias. Teachers and preachers have made much of Paul's eyes, I think much more than what Scripture actually tells us. Fourthly, Paul spoke to Ananias as a person ignoring his office. That's possible, but it certainly seems stretched. Fifthly, Paul really did not recognize Ananias. Even if Paul would have known the name of Ananias, he would have no occasion to recognize him by sight. Regardless of those views, what we learn is that Paul blew it. And he corrects his mistake. And we should do the same. If we refuse to correct our mistake. And instead we stand by it. We only give ammunition to those who say Christians are phonies and hypocrites. However, when we confess that we messed up. That we, we just made a mistake. People get the message that Christians aren't perfect. But they're willing to admit their mistakes and they're willing to even make things right. This is one of the reasons why, as a pastor, I'm not afraid to stand in the pulpit and say, Hey, I messed up. I've done that here. I've, I've blown it. I've told you that. Now, you guys are always gracious. Oh, pastor, I probably would have done the same thing. And that sometimes helps me, but sometimes it doesn't. Because sometimes you say, Yeah, you're right. You did blow it. You shouldn't have said that or done that. But I know I'm not perfect. I make mistakes, I blow it. And guess what? So do you. And when we run around as Christians blowing it and then never admitting that we blow it and we just kind of hang on that one thing, even though we blew it, we just kind of pretend like we didn't. We pretend like, we, we pretend like we weren't wrong. 
and we don't seek forgiveness, we only reinforce people's negative bias. Some of my greatest regrets are the times when I've blown it and, and, and I've, I've kept myself from admitting my wrongs and making them right. The Lord can use your confession to open people's hearts to the gospel. When we blow it, we must trust that God will use it anyway. Look what Paul does. He admits he's wrong. But then... He goes on. Does he stop witnessing? No. He changes tactics. He notices some of them are Pharisees and some of them are Sadducees. And so he says, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And what does this do? This leads to a heated debate in the council. And Luke explains the Sadducees denied the resurrection. And one of my Bible teachers to help me remember uh, the Sadducees denied the resurrection. He used to say they were sad, you see. Because, then, sorry. But that's obviously a Bible joke. They, they, they were the Sadducees. They denied the resurrection. They also denied angels and spirits. But the Pharisees acknowledge all that. And so the Pharisees defend Paul. And the Sadducees attack Paul. And the Pharisees, um, they, they attack Paul and the Pharisees. And look what happens. It gets violent all over again. And Paul has to be rescued by force yet again. We don't know Paul's intent. We don't know what he was trying to do when he does this. He says he was a Pharisee. We don't know that, we didn't know that some Pharisees, uh, um, well, we do know that some Pharisees at this time had become Christians. And, and so to say Paul could no longer claim to be a Pharisee would, would actually be incorrect. At any rate, what we notice is that Paul was witnessing and things don't go so well. We have had times where that's maybe happened to you. Perhaps you've shared with someone and they said, I don't ever want to hear you talk like that again. I don't ever want to hear you witness to me again. I don't believe in Jesus or I don't believe in the Bible or I don't believe in God. And when that happens, we just trust that God uses our attempt to accomplish his will. Listen, God does not need perfection to accomplish his sovereign plan. That's not an excuse to, to never study or to never know how to share the gospel. I'm just saying he doesn't need a perfect disciple to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Because none of us are perfect. And that sometimes it's through our weakness that God displays his greatness. Every follower of Christ is responsible to be a witness. If you're here today and you say, well, I, I know Jesus as my Savior, then it's your responsibility to be a witness for Jesus. And there's times that we're going to blow it and things are going to get messed up. Things are not going to go the way we want them to. And we're going to say maybe the wrong thing or maybe we're going to offend somebody out on the street or maybe we're going to stutter over our words and we're going to walk away from that feeling dejected and like, oh man, I just blew it. And that's where most Christians stop. They stop there. They, they try it. Have you ever seen this happen? Someone comes to know Christ as their Savior. And man, they're ready to charge hell with a water pistol. They're excited about their faith. They're, they want to go out and they want to tell everybody about Jesus. Everybody needs to know about Jesus. I found Jesus. I need to tell everybody about Jesus. And they go out and they tell family and they tell friends. And they get rejected and rejected and rejected. Because not everybody is as excited about them that they, that they came to know Christ as their Savior. And, and so not everybody's excited. And guess what happens? They stop. Well, I tried. 
Not everybody's going to listen. And that's it. And then they grow old and they die, rarely sharing their faith. But, church, that's why we have verse 11. Because when we blow it, God gives grace. I love that saying, where sin is great, God's grace is greater. When we blow it, when we mess up, God gives grace. Look at verse 11. The following night, it says, the Lord stood by him and he says to Paul, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Can you imagine Paul laying there in his bed that's how I like to imagine he's kind of laying there in his bed he's discouraged maybe he's running over in his mind boy I've blown it man I didn't recognize the high priest and I said the wrong thing and and I told him that God was going to condemn him and I blew it nothing's going to go nothing's going right I got involved first of all in some scheme to show everybody that I was still a Jew and all it did was get me arrested and then beaten and then I go before the Sanhedrin and that was a failure. And no one listens to, to what I have to say. Nobody's paying attention to me. He's laying there discouraged. He's never going to make it to Rome. And then the Lord stood at his side. And the very first words. Take courage. What a powerful word for the Lord. Words that give encouragement and hope. I could probably preach a whole sermon on that one sentence. I'm not going to do that. This is an emphasis of God's control over all the events that have gone on in Paul's life. Listen, church, take courage. When you're a witness for Jesus, take courage. When you blow it, take courage. When you feel like a failure, take courage. All the grace and encouragement that comes from our Lord just when Paul needed it most. Take courage, Paul. And look what he says. As you've testified about me. Take courage, Paul. Because even though that you think that this has been a failure, what has he done? What does the Lord say? You've testified about me. You've been my witness. You've spoken the truth in my name, Paul. Oh, church, that we would grasp this mighty word from God. It's not about you. It's not about you. You're going to blow it. You're going to mess up, but it's not about you, church, because God gives grace. And he says, take courage. It's not about you. It's all about me. As long as you're a witness for Jesus, take courage. I'm not saying that the Lord's going to come to you and speak to you like he did Paul. And he's going to give you encouragement. However, I know this when I'm blowing it. He encourages me through his word or through a random note. Sometimes from a stranger or someone randomly says something to me and it's an encouragement. And they had no idea that I needed to hear those words on that day. The Lord's aware when we need to be encouraged. He knows when you've blown it. 
and he gives grace. He wants you to be encouraged to know he is with us. He will use you to be a witness for Jesus. You know why? Because he overrules your mistakes. Church, maybe you didn't hear that. He overrules your mistakes. I'm not saying go out and intentionally try to make mistakes and abuse the grace of God. But I'm saying to you, church, he overrules your mistakes. You're going to blow it and you're going to mess up. And guess what? By his divine sovereign plan, he steps in and he overrules. That's what he does. He overrules your mistakes. So we've seen that Paul was a witness for Jesus. He was a witness to this angry crowd and, and to the commander and to the Sanhedrin and he was ready to speak. He was prepared and he lived it out. And the question for you this morning, it's a very simple one. Are you a witness for Jesus? Are you a witness for Jesus? As you reflect on your Christian life, are you a witness for Jesus. Some of you may be saying this morning. Well I used to be. Oh you remember. You remember what it was like. When you first came to know Christ. You were like a little kid. You wanted everybody to know. Are you a witness for Jesus? You remember what it was like. The first time that, that you heard something. And you thought oh man that's. That's really good. That's a neat witnessing. I'm, I'm sure everybody's going to accept Jesus when or receive Jesus when I share that with them. I'm sure they're gonna, that's going to happen. And you go out and you try it right and something doesn't go right. Or you remember the first time, maybe you heard a sermon like this and you thought, man, I'm ready. I'm going to go out and I'm going to share Jesus. And maybe you called your best friend or you called a relative or someone and you shared the gospel and they denied it. And you've stopped. And you've given up. How about in this past year? Have you been a witness? Maybe say, well, I'm afraid. I'm going to blow it. Are you going to allow your fear to keep you from sharing the gospel? Because guess what? You're going to blow it. You're going to make mistakes. But God will overrule. He overrules our mistakes and he extends his grace and even more opportunities. I was talking to a missionary this week. Just talking about speaking. And I shared with him kind of the gist of this message. He said, you know, so often I get done preaching a sermon and I think, man, I blew that or I didn't say that right. He said, thanks for just encouraging me that God overrules. So I ask you again that question, are you a witness for Jesus Christ? 
Church, the time to be a witness is now. It's not when you get things in order. It's not when you feel like the time is right to be a witness. The time to be a witness is now. We have to stop and think that our walk with Christ is to be a witness for Him. You see, church, most Christians are sharing this in Sunday school this morning. Most Christians are stuck in the rut of life. They do the same thing over and over again. Every day, day after day, week after week, month after month, they do the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And they're stuck in a routine and they never see people that God brings into their lives to share the gospel with. And they they never share the gospel and they're going to go through their life. Remember the stats, 61%. I'd venture to guess that that it's far greater than that. They're going to walk through their life having received Christ, the light of the world, knowing that Jesus is the Savior and that, that there's people that are lost and going to hell and they're going to say I know Jesus but they're going to walk through their entire life doing the same thing over and over and over again and never being a witness for Jesus and if we're not bearing a witness to Jesus then guess what we will never see people saved so don't sit there and pretend like you love the lost And that by displaying that, you come to church on Sunday morning. That's not loving the lost. Don't pretend like, oh, boy, we sure do want to see people saved if you're not willing to be a witness. Church, I want this to be that defining moment for you. I want this to be that time where you walk out of here saying, I'm ready. I'm going to share the gospel because you know that there's going to be people that are going to reject you and there's going to be people that think that you're crazy and nuts or whatever. But guess what? When you blow it, God overrules. And maybe this morning you've heard the Lord prod you. So I just want you to know I'm going to be standing right down front. If you say, Pastor, I just I want to pray. I'm not, I'm not the witness I should be. I want you to pray with me or I just want to pray on my own or you want to pray in your pew. I just want to challenge you to do that and then tell somebody before you walk out of here, just say, I'm, I'm done. I'm done being this casual Christian, this nominal Christian. I'm, I'm, I need to be sharing the gospel. You want our church to grow, share the gospel. It's plain and simple. It's plain and simple, church. And maybe this morning for the first time, the gospel has made sense. Maybe it never made sense to you before, but... For the first time it's made sense to you that I need to give my life to Christ. I'd love to share with you how you can do that. If you need prayer or you just need to talk, you can come right down front. Or you can wait till afterwards. However you need to respond, I pray that you'd be willing to respond. Let's close with prayer this morning.